Siege of New Hampshire series by Mick Rowland. Book 5, Critical Spring. Chapter 6, Bits of Evidence, Part 2. Why don't we put Wilder's theory to the test, offered Martin. How about if we turn on that beacon thing in the parking lot of the post office? It's near the center of town, like they'd expect, but it's in the open. Lots of places we could hide and watch, see who shows up, grab them when they do. Now you're talking! Wilder bounced and clasped his hands. Grab them when they show up! Good idea, said Berg. Since we stopped these guys down by the river, my guess is they expected to be up past North Pond tonight. Whoever is supposed to follow them would be expecting the tracker to be transmitting tonight. Who's up for a stakeout? Everyone's hand went up, even Walter's. Berg laughed, joking that they should at least have the bomber group outnumbered. Buckets of water? scoffed Wilder. You're planning to give the hoodlums a bath? No, Martin snarked back. He and Dustin set down their five-gallon pails of water. If they're bringing a firebomb, we might need this. Bah! We'll stop em first, said Wilder. He patted his bolt-action three o eight with a conventional scope. Martin looked away to roll his eyes. It'll be night time, and you don't have a night vision scope on that thing. Martin brought his crude Gen 1 night vision monocular. He wouldn't be able to use it to aim his carbine, but he might be able to see people approaching the parking lot in the dark. Vision without a gun was not much better than a blind 308, so he decided not to say anything. Groups of townsmen were arrayed behind the town hall, the post office, and the library all on the opposite side of the road from the direction of North Pond. Berg had set up some trip wires between the church and the parsonage, and between the parsonage and the Italian eight home next door. He was reasonably certain that a clandestine group approaching from the north would try to pass between those three buildings. The highway was too exposed, and fences farther up the street were awkward barriers. The afternoon's long shadows had merged together to become the dim blue light of evening. The old familiar chill of winter's nights replaced the day's springtime warmth. Martin and Dustin settled in under their heavy wool blankets to get some shut-eye while Wilder and Stuba kept the first watch. Around midnight, Stuba tapped Martin's boot. Psst, you're up soon. Martin nudged Dustin who started to stretch and yawn loudly until the others shushed him. Nothing so far, Martin whispered. Ah, uh, oh, well, we caught him an hour ago, muttered Wilder. We just like sitting in the dark and cold. Martin decided to let Wilder's sarcasm go. He shivered in the cold outside of his blanket cocoon. Peering around the corner of the library, he could see the little box's blinking red LED. Not a peep, whispered Wilder. Dang quiet night, too. Only sound has been a couple of owls a mile away. No way someone could walk through the dry leaves without making at least a little noise. 
Okay, well, you guys bed down for your four hours, Martin said. We'll take the watch. He pulled out his night vision scope and panned across the landscape. The green images were grainy and imprecise, but he could clearly see the imposing front of the Greek Revival-style church with its double doors. The space between the church and the austere white parsonage showed no changes. The little bump-over telltales that Berg had set up, dry leaves poked on twigs stuck in the ground, were just a few grainy pixels, but they were all still standing. Nothing had moved between the buildings. The story was the same for the home next door. All was quiet. Sitting in the cold, dark, and silence was taxing on the mind. Martin found his mind wandering all too easily. Would he be able to get beans to grow in his back acre? The soil was poor. Their compost pile wouldn't go far back there. It was great that Susan sent along those bags of beans. What was Susan doing in Vermont? What was she so busy doing? Was she really okay? When Martin realized that he was thinking about Susan, he shook his head vigorously. Think about something else, dummy. There's no such thing as soulmates. I still say it's Quinn, muttered Wilder from inside his cone of wool blanket. You're supposed to be sleeping, said Martin, without turning around. Too cold for sleep. Shh, Dustin interrupted. You guys hear something? The other three men perked up. What? What? What did you hear? It sounds like a generator or something, Dustin said, really faint. I don't hear anything, said Wilder. It's, it's the total silence. Plays tricks on your mind. Dustin ignored the condescending tone. No, sit over here where I am, in front of the library wall. It acts like a reflector. All four men scooted in their blanket bundles, close to where Dustin sat. Martin sat a little taller, his head tipped slightly. All he could hear was the hiss of his own blood coursing through his ears. Was this a case of younger ears hearing better than old ears, or a case of young imagination? Wait, said Wilder. I do hear something. It sounds like a generator, way, way off. I haven't heard a generator running in months, whispered Stuba. Martin stretched his neck a little higher and turned his head a little more. Then he heard it too. It sounds too high-pitched, not low and growly. Dustin moved a few feet away from where he had been sitting. Now that I listen to it a little bit more, it does sound kind of buzzy, like several generators at once. It's way off that way. Um, um, you're not pointing in the dark, are you? Martin asked. Oh, <laughs> uh, sorry. Yeah, I, I was. It, it sounds like it's behind us, south, and maybe a little east. Town farm? They haven't had fuel for their generator in a couple of months, said Stuba. Is the wind picking up? Martin asked. He heard the faint hiss of wind in the bare twigs treetops. A sudden thud of a low-pressure explosion made all four men jump. The walls of the post office and library were instantly lit with a yellow-orange glow. The bombers! shouted Wilder. He grabbed his 308 and ran around the corner. 
stock to his shoulder. Stuba ran after him, as did Martin and Dustin. Other knots of men came running up, too. The drive-up mailbox at the edge of the small parking lot was engulfed in tall flames. "'Get the water!' shouted Martin. He and Dustin ran back for their buckets. The other men began to spread out across the street to try and intercept the bombers. Martin ran as close as he dared to the fireball mailbox before launching his water at the base of the flames. When his water hit the legs of the mailbox, globs of fire splashed in all directions. Dustin ran up beside him. Wait, Martin shouted, but it was too late. Dustin had launched his bucket of water also. More blobs of fire leapt and skipped across the parking lot. The fire raged on. Small fires began in the dry grass beyond the parking lot where the flaming blobs had stopped. Martin squinted at the fire, puzzled at the lack of effect from his water. He noticed odd bits of flames at the base of the mailbox. There was nothing under the mailbox that evening. Evidence? Without thinking, he sidestepped up to the fire, shielding his face with his forearm. He kicked at the bits to knock them clear of the fire. His first kick missed. His second kick connected with something. His face stung from the heat, even with his arm raised as a shield. One more, he thought. He kicked again. His foot found something loose. You're on fire, shouted Dustin. Martin felt several hands pulling him down. They rolled him on the ground. He felt patting and heat, searing heat, in his leg. Instinctively, he screamed and crab-walked backward on his hands and butt to get free of the pain. The fire on his leg was out, though the fabric still smoked. "'What the hell were you doing?' shouted Wilder. "'Trying to get yourself killed?' "'I saw something,' said Martin. "'I kicked it.' He looked around the parking lot, a glow from the fire. "'You okay?' asked Bird. "'What were you doing?' Over there, by that curb, Martin pointed. He got up to run toward the strange object. It was still on fire slightly, glowing blue like a marshmallow over a campfire. Martin scooped sand and threw it on the blue flames before they consumed whatever it was that he had kicked. That stuff wasn't normal accelerant, announced one of the other men. It acted like napalm. Everyone glanced back at the fire that was beginning to lose its vigor. In the midst stood a black and sagging mailbox. Why would someone go to all this trouble just to blow up our mailbox? That makes no sense. Are you all right, Dad? asked Dustin. Uh, does your leg hurt? Huh? Oh, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, look at this. Martin held up the marshmallow that he had rescued. It looked like a run-over styrofoam coffee cup. By this point, the other man had gathered to see what Martin had found. Plastic? asked one of them. Was that what this bomb was in? I think so, said Martin. It wasn't there last night. He held up the sooty slab so that they could see it better. Look at this end. It's an airfoil. A what? Part of a wing, said Martin. This was part of a much larger styrofoam wing. The fire had just about melted it all away except for this bit. We didn't see anyone, said a pair of men, running up to the group. We searched all behind the church and parsonage. Yeah, they must have used a timer. No one could have run that fast. Besides, none of the tripwires had been... Hey, what's that? It's a piece of a wing, Martin held it up for the newcomers. 
His imagination was in overdrive, fueled by adrenaline and maybe a little pain. I think the firebomb came in on a glider. What? How and uh Of course, Martin firmed up his theory as he spoke. A glider could carry a payload of flammable stuff, continued Martin. Like a bottle of napalm? asked another man. Oh, sure, why not? Martin nodded. That's why no one heard anything before this. It was a glider. He faced the south. Gliders only come down. Something had to hoist this thing up before it could come gliding down. That generator sound? asked Dustin. Maybe it was a drone. If drones can deliver Amazon packages, why couldn't one carry a glider? Wait, hold the phone, announced Wilder. You're trying to tell me that someone hooked up a styrofoam glider loaded with napalm to a drone and brought it over here to drop a bomb on our only mailbox? Oh, well, I, uh, that's got to be the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my whole... Well then, genius, snapped Martin. How do you explain that? He flailed an arm at the smoldering mailbox. Fire from nowhere. Section of a wing. No sound. Come up with a better theory, or shut up. Hey now, you two, Berg stepped between Martin and Wilder. The two of them glared at each other over Berg's shoulders. Yeah, look at this other junk, said another man. He brought a square of blackened plastic with two stiff wires dangling from it. What do you think this is, or was? Dustin took the twisted debris and studied it. The light's getting too dim out here. Uh, let's take it inside. Okay, said Berg. You four men, make a patrol sweep around the church. Pass the hardware store and back. Look for anything out of the ordinary. Stuba, take a couple other guys and sweep a hundred yards farther out. Look for anything. The remainder of the group filed up the steps of town hall. Someone lit an oil lamp in the front parlor, the waiting room where the 19th-century ladies would wait while the menfolk tended to town business. It's a, it's a small circuit board, said Dustin. These little boxy things here are little servos. We used some like these where there are Arduinos and robotics class. These stiff wires here are, are probably push rods. Right, said Martin, with a hint of vindication. One for rudder, one for stabilizer. That glider was controlled, probably had some onboard circuits to home in on the little transmitter. Which it missed by a mile, said Walter. It was at least thirty feet away. Uh, yeah, well, that's kind of a mile, his voice trailed off. None of this is all that sophisticated, said Martin. That may be as accurate as they needed to be. If they were trying to hit a building, thirty feet would probably be good enough. I still say that that's the dumbest, began Wilder. You've got nothing better, growled Martin. His leg hurt, his head hurt. He was in no mood for trolls. Routine hunger and cold had made most people short on patience. Gentlemen, said Berg. Martin took a deep breath to settle his emotions. Think about it for a minute, Wilder. What better way to sow terror among us than to have seemingly random fires springing up and destroying our food supplies, or striking in the middle of a town that we think is remote enough to be safe from the X's? Those X's don't have to actually do the deed. 
they just sneak up, plant the beacon, and slink back to mass to collect their rewards. If they're caught, like these guys were, there's nothing to connect them to the fires. Except that little beacon box, interjected Walter. We figured it out from that. And I'm sure they were told to stash or destroy the beacons if they got caught, added Martin. They buried this one. If it hadn't been for Stuba and his policeman's eyes, we might have missed it. Wilder's forehead was scrunched into many furrows. And I'll bet Quinn provides the feds with target locations. They'll send in a squad of X's to plant beacons. Then the feds, in mass, drop a glider full of napalm to follow the beacon, Martin said with a little too much smugness. Since the glider's made of styrofoam, all the evidence is supposed to burn up. Yes, fine, whatever, said Wilder. The question is, what are we going to do about it? This second half of Chapter 6 turned out to be shorter than I thought. When I got done with the raw editing of the whole chapter, it clocked in at over 47 minutes. There's typically a couple of minutes of runtime that get edited out, for coughs and flubs and do-overs, etc. But even then, 45 minutes was still too long for one episode. So, I picked a spot roughly halfway through the chapter that seemed like a reasonable topic break. The first half, last week's episode, went pretty much as expected, with a runtime of 23 minutes or so. When I was doing the editing on this second half, however, there were so many flubs, coughs and do-overs, I mean, a lot. What started out as 22 minutes of raw audio edited down to just 16. Man, I had no idea how bad I was stumbling in that second half. Maybe I needed another cup of coffee, eh? Yeah, how's that for a segue? Pretty smooth? Eh, okay, maybe not. Uh, but seriously, I do appreciate your support through Buy Me a Coffee. Sakes knows Podbean's ad marketplace has proven to be a total washout. The coffees and memberships are the only financial help the Siege Stories receive. Thanks to those of you who bought me some coffees since the last episode, and a huge thank you to my Siege Club members and my patrons on Patreon for your ongoing support. You guys are great. <laughs>